Jesus, we desire to surrender everything to you, but Lord, it would be a lie to say that we are completely surrendered today. Uh, there are areas in our heart that don't yet trust you and don't yet believe all of your promises. And Jesus, I pray that you would be gracious to us and be merciful to us and help us to believe where we don't believe. And Lord, help us to know what you have for us and what you've promised. And Lord, move in our hearts because even if we know it, if we don't believe it in our hearts, we're just as lost. Lord, we need your Holy Spirit to overwhelm us and control us. We ask that you would do this for us. Send us your Holy Spirit, Father. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, our mind is a small part of our body. body three pounds is what the normal brain weighs. Kurtz is about double that, about six pounds. Because his brain is huge. <laughs> but it's a huge part of our life, your brain is. It's like the captain of a big ship. You guys seen the big ships, those huge... Who's taking a cruise? Those are fun, right? Get on there, free drinks forever. It's like those big ships. But they're enormous. They're the size of many times bigger than a house or even a hotel, and they float in the water. And it's just tremendous that they can be driven and steered by one measly little captain. And he's got controls, and he's got levers, and he's got nerve endings that, that go throughout this whole ship, and he can control the whole deal from his little seat in his captain's chair. And once one of these long ships, I did some research on what the biggest ship in the world was, and this big ship, for it to turn around 180 de degrees was like 14 hours. And it, most of the time, it couldn't even do it. They had to have tugboats turn it because it can't turn unless it's moving because it's got this tiny little rudder that moves this thing like 40 times the size of the Pentagon, this big ship. Anyway, it takes a long time to get a ship turned around. Now, the captain of our ship is our mind. Our ship is our life, all right? So our minds, you know, they're controlling our life, but it takes a long time to get our life to turn. Even if our mind changes, it takes a long time for our, the rest of our life to follow. And this letter of Philippians is going to help us slowly change our mind to change our life to go in a different direction. Let me show you how your mind can be affected. Say the word silk five times fast. Come on. I see you. You're not doing it. Silk, 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 silk. How do you spell silk? S-I-L-K. Do that five times fast. S-I-L-K. 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 Now, what does a cow drink? No, liars! Cows don't drink milk. What did I just do? I tricked your mind. You're all dark magic, Salem witch trials, here we come. No. I, did. I altered your brains. I changed your mind. 
I conformed your mind to my will. You were merely my puppets. <laughs> I enjoy the power of this. But what we got to do is we're going to look first at Romans chapter 12, verses, or verse 2. And I'm going to put it up here for you guys to see it. Romans 12, verse 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So the reason why we're going to study Philippians is so that our mind can be renewed. So Paul can train your brain to say milk when it should say milk. Now, he's not going to pull the evil tricks that I just pulled on you. He's going to do the right thing. He's going to teach you the right way to go. The way we think needs to be renewed, which means we need to relearn how to use our brains. And Paul's going to teach us how to do that. As we grow up, we put a high value on, on our thoughts. We're always asking our kids, hey, what do you think about that? What do you think about that? Well, the Bible tells us how to think properly. And this offends us. Because in our culture, here's the problem with what we're going to do over the next few weeks. I'm going to tell you how to think. And our culture has this idea that your thoughts are your thoughts and nothing can ever be wrong with your thoughts. And that is simply not true. There can be a lot wrong with your thoughts. The culture says you should be able to share your thoughts with whoever you want. And if they don't like your thoughts, they're closed-minded and old-fashioned and they should just go away. That's what our culture says. But the Word of God says that our mind is currently conformed to the world. In other words, the world has played this trick on you. Say silk, say silk, say silk, say silk, and you're just silk. And our brains are just working that way. They've been conformed to the world, which means we've unknowingly let the world decide how we think. The world, which is in total rebellion against God, hates God. They have taught your mind how to think. Rebellion has formed us. We've lived there our whole lives. It seems normal to us. Our ship is going this direction. And it's going to take a while for us to turn it around. But this book of Philippians will. The Lord will teach us how to think. And if we learn how to think like he wants us to think, if we listen to how he instructs us, it will transform our lives your ship will go a different direction. It can be transformed, as this verse says, by the renewing of your mind. So let's get into it. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. This study is called How to Think About Christians. How to Think About Christians. Philippians 1, 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ. We'll just go ahead and stop right there. These are the guys who wrote it. So who are these guys that are giving us all this advice on thinking? The only description we have is bondservants of Jesus Christ. So what is a bondservant? A bondservant is a slave, but it's more than just a slave. A bondservant is a slave by choice. Someone who decided they wanted to be a slave. 
Now, that seems bizarre to us, because why would anyone want to be a slave? But that's the culture we live in. When you look at the culture they lived in, slavery was a very common practice, and many people were born into slavery. And the way slavery worked most of the time is if you worked long enough and hard enough, there was an amount you could pay to buy your freedom. To buy your freedom. And in Israel, you actually weren't allowed to be a slave longer than a certain set amount of time. Even if you lost all your money, you could wait around for the year of Jubilee to show up, and all slaves were freed on the year of Jubilee. So it's pretty cool, every seven years. So the longest you could be in debt was seven years. Well, if you were living as a slave and you had bound yourself to someone and, and you were serving them and every day out serving them, washing their stuff, and you grew close to them, See, people weren't all evil. Every slave master wasn't evil. It was a way to kind of work off a debt. And so a lot of times they were very kind and loving. A lot of times they would invite you into their family and you would feel more a part of your slave owner's family than any other part, any other family, your own family. They would really love you. And if that love and that relationship grew to the point where you, you would rather stay in this house, then go back to your own house, then you could become a bond servant. Your freedom, maybe you even earned your freedom and, and you come the day that's appointed for you to go away free and you say, hey, slave master, friend, I, I choose to not leave. I would like to stay with you. And this was actually quite common back in the day. And so what they would do is they would take their ear and they would put it up next at the door frame of the house and they would poke a hole through it and they would put an ear ring in their ear. And so anyone who had an ear ring was a bond servant. A servant by choice. They could have gone free, but they decided, I will serve you for the rest of my life because I love you and you love me. And this relationship is what being a bond servant is. So, Paul and Timothy are going to write to us this letter about how to think. And their whole foundation of what they're going to teach us is built upon the fact that they are bondservants of Jesus Christ. They love Jesus, and he loves them. So I want to ask you this question. Who should we take advice from? Who should we take advice from? As far as people, yes, Jesus. Uh, only take advice from Jesus, just yes, that's the right answer. That's the Bible answer, 10 Jesus points. There you go. But in our life, there are people, all kinds of people giving you advice. And here we learn a lesson. Only take advice from someone who's humble. Someone who is broken of their own pursuits and committed and enslaved to Jesus Christ in his glory. That's who to take advice from when it comes to thinking. How am I, th how, you could go to a psychologist and they'll talk to you about your thinking, but that they may or may not be broken of their own pursuits. They may not have chosen to become a slave of Jesus Christ. And so they may have other agendas that aren't Jesus's agenda. In fact, they probably do. Many people write books of advice Long letters, you could call them, of their own thoughts and opinions. But 
when they're really just pushing their own agenda and their own thinking patterns, it doesn't help us. We need broken men and women to be writing letters like Paul and Timothy. We need broken men and women to be giving advice. Paul, for us, he meets this requirement and he's proven that he's not concerned about his own legacy, his own plans, his own comfort, his own ideas. Where is Paul right now as he's writing this? He's in prison. Why? Because for the sake of Jesus Christ, for loving these people, the church, he loved them, he served them, and so Rome has thrown him in prison. So he's proved that he's not in it for himself. He's not just building a big church. He's not there to become popular. He really, truly cares about them. And so his advice is good. Paul only wants to share the riches of heaven's wisdom. Paul only wants people to know Jesus in the way that he knows him. Did you know that the gospel is just fine without you trying to explain it? It's been going for 2,000 years without your wonderful explanation of why it's good. It's just been good for 2,000 years. We think we need to try to figure out how to share the gospel with this world. You don't. Just tell them what Jesus did. If they ask you questions... Be honest. If you know the answer, tell them the answer. If not, say, I don't know. But here's the good news. Jesus died on the cross for your sin. He was God. He died for you. You can be forgiven. There you go. They can't argue with that. I think it was C.S. Lewis that said, you don't have to defend the gospel. You just treat it like a lion. Do you have to defend a lion? No, you just release it. And it kills people. Same thing with the gospel. Do you guys hear about the guy? They shot a gorilla this week at the Cincinnati Zoo because a kid fell in the gorilla thing and so they had to shoot the gorilla. Oh, so sad. That had nothing to do with anything. <laughs> Paul isn't trying to take away their riches. He's not trying to steal their money like so many people giving advice today. How much does it cost to go to a psychologist? A sinful amount. I don't even know, but it's awful, right? I want you to contrast Paul's attitude here with televangelists that you see on TV, with, with Benny Hinn and Kenneth Copeland and Creflo Dollar. Yes, his last name is Dollar. And that's all he talks about. Send your money to me and I'll give you a little bit of advice. Give me more money. That's, that's what's going on in our world. But we need to be careful who we pay attention to, who we give our ear to, where we take our advice. Don't take advice from these jokers that you see on TV. They're full of pride. They want your money. It's cool. We will never ask for your money at our church. We never have. Maybe you just thought that we forgot to pass the offering plates every single week <laughs> for the past three years. No, we didn't forget. We are never going to ask you for money ever, 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 ever. If you don't know how to give, tough. Figure it out. 
So, lesson number one. Thinking lesson number one is only take advice from humble servants of Jesus. Only take advice from humble servants of Jesus. Well, let's continue reading. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. So we're going to learn today how we should think about all saints, even pastors and leaders. Paul is going to teach everyone in the church how to think. And today we're going to learn specifically how to think about other Christians. So we get now to his main purpose, verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the main purpose of this letter. And almost every one of Paul's letters has the same purpose, that these believers would receive grace and peace from God. Why do we go to church? To get grace and peace. Why do I spend time alone with God? For grace and peace and peace. What does God have to give me a million dollars? No. Grace and peace. Paul wants them to receive something real and tangible from these thinking lessons that he's going to give. Something that will change their life. And grace is the power of the life of God inside you. It's given to men so that they can act like God wants them to. It's the power to change the way that we live. That's what grace is. And peace is what men so desperately need. It's that quiet, confident assurance that God is not mad at you anymore and you're not his enemy. That peace that you have. We struggle with it all the time. When I mess up, when I fail, my peace is gone. And I have to go back to the Lord and say, Lord, I need something from you right now. I need forgiveness so that I can have the peace in my heart again. When we have this confidence that we're his children, it's like we, have, we know that we're on his team. And we know that we're going to win. No matter how bad it looks or how bad you feel, you have this unbreakable confidence like Tebow in the fourth quarter. You know you're going to win. And that's, that's the kind of confidence and peace that a right thinking will give someone. So this is the goal of all of our thinking lessons is you'll have grace, which means you'll be able to access God's power to do what's right when you need to do what's right. And you'll have peace and confidence knowing that you're on his team, that it's going to work out for you. This is the goal of right thinking. And anytime come, someone comes up to me and says, man, I'm afraid. I don't have peace. Or I keep failing and sinning and I need victory over my sin. I know that we have a thinking issue. We need to work on thinking the right way. And uh, we'll see how, that, how we learn about that. Um, so this is what a transformed life looks like. Like we read in Romans 12 too, it was a transformed life. For us, it looks like a life full of grace and peace. That's what this transformed life looks like. That's how God wants us to live our life, is full of grace and peace. Living a life that honors God by grace and confident of your connection with God, that's peace. 
That's it. Everything else is just details. Everything else we're just going to see. But have you seen that bumper sticker as you're driving around that says, I'm okay with God. It's his followers I can't stand. Maybe you have that bumper sticker. I think there's another bumper sticker that says, I'm okay with God, it's his fan club that annoys me. This is, a, this is an attitude that has crept into our society and our culture that a lot of Christians like to bash other Christians. All right, now, we're going to learn now how Paul says to think about other people. And it certainly will not be to be annoyed with them to be frustrated by them. That attitude, that bumper sticker portrays this attitude of God never did anything wrong, but man, his people and people at church, they're all hypocrites. They're all a bunch of jokers and I don't want to give them the time of day. Well, you're now the hypocrite for having that bumper sticker because we're going to see that's not the right way to think. That's not the right way. Let's read verse 3. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Just as as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, insomuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and in all discernment, that you may approve... What, um, the things that are excellent, and you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Christ Jesus, to the glory and praise of God. They say, I'm okay with God, but it's his followers I can't stand. But Paul says, I thank my God every time I remember you. The first way Paul teaches us to control our mind is with a tool called giving thanks. Giving thanks. Paul thanked God every time he remembered these people, even though his life would have probably been much easier without them. Turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 16. In the book of Acts, chapter 16, it tells us the story of when Paul met these Philippians. So he's giving us here a tool, as you're turning to Acts 16, I'll tell you, he's giving you a tool for how to control your mind because you can't be complaining about someone and giving thanks to God for them at the same time. It's very difficult to do that. But let's see what it says here in Uh, Let's start in verse 11 in Acts 16. Therefore, sailing from Choraz, we ran a straight course to 
Somothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis, and from there came to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside, where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women who, who met there. Now, a certain woman named Lydia heard us, and she was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira, who worshipped God. And the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl, possessed with the spirit of divination, met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. And she came out, and he came out that very hour. But when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city. They, and they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet with stocks. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly... There was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awakening from sleep and seeing the prison doors opening, open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Then he called for a light, ran in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then he spoke the word of the Lord to them all and all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour that night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them, and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. And when it was day, the magistrates sent the, the officer, saying, Let those men go. So the keeper of the prison reported those words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and they have thrown us into prison. And now do they put us out secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves to get us out. 
And the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid, for they heard they were Romans. And they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia, where they had seen the brethren, and then they encouraged them and departed. So that's the story of Paul in Philippi. And I said before that his life probably would have been easier without them. What do I mean? Well, look at it. Paul was beaten. He was thrown in prison. He survived an earthquake. He had to go to court. And he was even dragged to the market. All horrible things. But God used him to minister to these people. And now he gives thanks for them. So our thinking lesson number two is give thanks for brothers even if they are difficult for you. Some people are difficult to be around. And everyone said, amen. (laughs) Some people will suck your time away. Some people will just be trouble for you. You may even get hurt by other believers. (gasps) Oh my. And our flesh wants to react in anger or self-preservation or bitterness. Those hypocrites at church, they hurt me. I'm never going to go back there again. But the Spirit is calling us to something different, to give thanks even for the difficult believers. It's simply a battle between flesh and spirit. And somehow we have grown to accept the flesh in this way. We think it's okay to have that bumper sticker. More importantly, we think it's okay to have that heart that, well, 90% of Christians I don't like. Paul didn't have that attitude. He was hurt, but he gave thanks for them. So we need to pray, thank you, God, for bringing blank into my life. Thank you for choosing me to be a loving friend to them. Thank you for the opportunity to serve one of your children who you died for. See, when we pray that way, we are surrendering to God's will. We're seeking his kingdom and not ours because they are annoying. I didn't ever said that people aren't annoying in the church or people aren't difficult or people won't hurt you because they will. But our heart's the problem. Are we going to give thanks for them or are we going to be bothered by them. This is how we should think. When we get annoyed and bothered by people at church, the problem is you, not them. We are a ship going the wrong way. We need to get turned around. And the way that you turn the wheel and start getting turned around is by giving thanks. It doesn't change them, it changes you. That's crazy. Well, are they going to stop being so annoying? No. They're probably going to be more annoying. 
Because God wants to make sure that you're going to actually give thanks. You're going to actually surrender to his will. Notice what he says now in verse 4. Always, in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul says he is always happy to pray for them. He is confident in his prayers. He's even, I would call it, optimistic when praying about them. And this is actually going to be a huge theme throughout this letter of joy. A lot of pastors who teach the book of Philippians will entitle it something about joy because it is one of the main themes of the book. So Paul, again, where is he writing this letter from? A prison cell. He's chained to a guard. He is suffering, yet he's giving us lessons in how to think. Paul already knows how to think. He's already been transformed. So what does it look like when you're thinking right? And the answer is joy. And you guys have seen the, the what's it, mnemonic or the acronym of joy. To have joy, you put Jesus. You imagine the word joy going down. You have Jesus first, then others second, and then yourself last. That's the way to have joy. Well, that's a good way of thinking. That's a great thinking lesson in and of itself. But Paul has been changed so much. His boat is going in such a drastically different direction that his normal state is joy. He is just always rejoicing. Have you ever met a Debbie Downer? Are you a Debbie Downer? Paul says his normal state, he is chained. He has to go to the bathroom with some guy. He is in prison. He is suffering. So his normal state, his boat is going such a different direction that he's just full of joy now. And when he thinks about these believers, he's not stressed out. When he thinks about the Philippians, he's not bummed out. He's not burdened. Even though he probably could remember all those beatings that he took, all the nights in jail. He's not sarcastic or sad when he thinks about them. Oh, my church. He's optimistic. He's optimistic. If you're a pessimistic person, I understand. But you can keep that pessimism to yourself. Our boats need to go in a different direction. Our minds need to rejoice in our brothers and sisters, not doubt them. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't warn them if they're sinning or in the pitfalls of sin or what may be on their road ahead. It doesn't mean we're just like, oh, everyone be happy. That's not what we're talking about. We warn them, that's fine. But we have to do the hard work of believing in God's power to change their life when they don't even believe it yet. This is why we teach grace at our church and why in my one-on-one meetings with guys, I've discipled them all in the same direction. I teach them grace because I believe that it will work. And I've seen it work over and over and over again. So even when they come in, they're like, well, what are we going to talk about? I don't really trust you and it's kind of weird that we're having coffee. I don't understand. I believe. So I'm just like, hey, come meet. Let's talk and let's be patient. I'm already doing the hard work of believing that God can change you. 
we believe that grace changes people. I don't believe it's me and coffee with the pastor is somehow miraculous. It's the same cheap coffee that we get everywhere else. Paul here, he teaches us to pray for the success of others by grace and expect God to answer those prayers by faith. So thinking lesson number three is pray optimistically for others just because they believe the gospel. Pray optimistically for others just because they believe the gospel. And this keeps us from doubting God's word and the power of his grace. When you doubt another Christian, what you're really doubting is not them. You're doubting God's grace, that it's powerful enough. Well, how do I not, how do I look at them honestly and say, you are terrible at being a Christian and yet be optimistic at the same time? How can I have both of those at the same time? By grace. You can look at them and say, oh, you, <laughs> you are awful at being a Christian. You are sinning so much. But hey, Jesus is the answer. So come and meet with me. Come spend time with me. Let's go through the word of God together. Let's focus our attention on Jesus Christ and his grace will change you. Oh, but you're annoying to hang out with. Die to yourself and serve the Lord. Worry about his kingdom, not who you want to spend time with. Minister to the people of God. This is how Paul is changing our thinking. It's not about you and who you like to hang out with. Oh, I don't know any Christians to hang out with. Well, come to anchor groups. There's lots of messed up Christians there. Come to church on Sundays and take someone out. Pray for them. Find out how you can pray for them. My wife got me this really cool new book, the um, notebook that I write my to pray for people and pray for guys in our church. And it's cool. It's black. I have it in the back right now. But it says evil plans and stuff. And I just think it's, that's the, type, that's the front of the thing, evil plans and stuff. I love it. Thank you, honey. All right. So print thinking lesson number three, we need to believe in the power of the gospel to change people. Not, not see, I mean, we can see them as they are, but we don't have to believe they're going to always stay that way. We believe there's something that changes people, and that's grace. And it can change the worst person because it changed me. That's the testimony we can have. And that's how we need to think. You don't have to stress about changing people. Like, oh my gosh, they have so many problems. I don't know how to fix their problems. I don't care. God's grace changes people. So you don't have to stress about it. Get their eyes pointed to Jesus. Jesus will take care of it. Your job is to love them and get their eyes pointed to Jesus. You don't have to be bothered by other failures. Why? Because God makes provision for their failures in his grace. He'll wash away their sins. Ew, but their sins are icky and I don't want to be around them. You don't believe in grace then. You don't believe in God's power to wash them clean by faith. Your sins are icky too. But God loves hanging out with you because he's washed you clean. And you don't have to separate believers into categories based on performance. Because all believers believe the same gospel of grace. No believer is better than another. No believer is earning a higher standard than any other believer, as long as you believe in just Jesus alone. 
Verse 6, he says, Being confident in this very thing, he, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul is able to be so confident about these other believers because he trusts that God is the one who's going to do the work. Paul trusts God's word and God's gospel, and the good news is that all the works were finished where? On the cross. When did the gospel start to work? On the cross. When does it start to work in my life? When I looked at the cross and believed it. When is it going to start to work in this annoying person's life? When they look at the cross. It works. It works. Paul he trusts God's word and God's gospel because he has confidence and grace. He knows that it's a good work. He says here, he has begun this good work. Well, Spurgeon said, here's your weekly Spurgeon quote, God is a worker who completes his works. Where is there an instance of God beginning any work and leaving it incomplete? Show me once a work abandoned and thrown aside, half-formed. Show me a universe cast off from the great potter's wheel with the design in outline, the clay half-hardened, or the form unshapely from incompleteness. Our thinking lesson number four is don't give up on believers because God doesn't scrap a project. Don't give up on believers because God doesn't scrap a project. How many times do we give up on Christians because of some mistake that they made? Maybe they get divorced, or they commit a crime, or they're a total moral failure, or they're just a jerk. How many times do we write them off? And the problem is that I feel justified by shutting them out of my heart. Now, I don't care about that person anymore. You know, there is a time to kick people out of church. The Bible is very clear. Church discipline is real, and you're trusting God by believing in it and following it. But you don't do it out of hatred. You do it in love. You say, I'm so sorry, but you cannot come and be part of our church if you're going to continue in sexual sin like you are. If you're going to continue being divisive, you can't come here. Go away for a couple months, pray and seek the Lord because you can't be here. We love you and we desire for you to change, so I need you to believe the gospel you say you believe. Okay, that's how church discipline works. But we don't give up on them. We can change this. We can put our confidence in the Lord and, and in his power to transform lives. If a professing Christian is practicing sin, we, we have a bigger problem. We need to pray for that person to believe and surrender to God. And we might have to kick them out if they just have no problems practicing sin. But we still don't just ignore them or think poorly of them. We treat the practicing, the, the believer who's practicing sin, we treat them as what? An unbeliever. Well, does God say to be mean to unbelievers? No, he says love them and share what with them? 
the gospel. So that's how we should act with Christians who are sinning. Love them and share the gospel with them. Not reject them, not judge them. And what well, I mean, judge as in condemn them. Verse 7, Paul says, Just it is right for me to think this way of you all, because I have you in my heart. Inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. Paul says, this is the right way of thinking. I'm motivated by love. Paul just goes to great lengths to describe how much he loves them here. He says, I'm deeply connected to you. How, Paul, are you connected to these people? You were literally there like a week. And in that week, you were in jail most of the time. So how are you so deeply connected with these people? And Paul says, by the gospel and by grace. The same way Jesus loves you and is connected with you, he loves them and he's connected with them. You didn't earn it. And they didn't earn it either. But you hang on to it and claim it as yours, and so they can too. They believe the same gospel, and so they receive the same grace, is what he's saying. And that connection is greater than any disconnect they could ever have. And because they believe in the gospel, they suffer when Paul suffers, because we are all one body, the Bible says, and when one part of the body suffers, we all suffer. So thinking lesson number five, we are all one. No one is better than anyone else. Those are our five thinking lessons. And this thinking creates a heart of love for one another. When you really believe that we are one, that we are one body, every believer in God is one body, it changes the way you treat people in the church no matter how ugly they are. Paul says there are ugly parts of the body. And you know what you do with the ugly parts? You cover them up and give them greater honor. That's what we do. Nobody shows off their butt. Right? Who said not yet? <laughs> Inappropriate. When you're thinking that we're all one, when we have this thinking lesson in our mind, and we're, hey, I'm one with all these people, it creates love. Like when you crush your thumb with a hammer, what happens? You don't say, stupid thumb! Why are you always getting in the way? So lame, all weird and funny-shaped. <laughs> Not that anyone in here has funny-shaped thumbs. That's an inside joke. Okay. I don't know what I'm, where, where am I? Yes, you don't treat it like that. Why don't you come preach for me? That would be great. You don't treat your thumb like that. You, you bang it and you cover it up and you say, oh, babe, oh, oh, baby, oh, my, love you, my thumb. We hold it and care for it. And that's what Christians should do. And we're equipped to do that through God's grace. When we're thinking rightly, and we're thinking about everyone, and, and then a believer 
gets really hurt and maybe they're going through a divorce. Maybe they're really struggling with the sin. Our response isn't, you stupid. It's, I love you so much. Let me comfort you. Let me point you to Jesus. Let's pray together. Can I bring you a meal? Can I help you out? That's how we can start thinking rightly. Instead of complaining, I saw that coming. They're so weird and ugly anyway. So now we get to the application of all this thinking. And the application is get in the battle right now and do spiritual work. Get in the battle right now and do spiritual work. And so he teaches us this in verse 9 through 11. Paul prays. He says, this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, and that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So Paul's mind has been transformed by the gospel and by grace, and now he can pray effectively. Before, when he was thinking these people were all annoying and losers, his prayers were not very effective because he was like, Lord, kill them. They're annoying. Make them better. Just bothered by them. But now he's been thanking God for them. He's been doing all kinds of, he's been correcting his thinking. And so now he can pray effectively. He knows really what to pray for. He knows how to get things done on a spiritual level. He knows how to do the real work of the kingdom of God, which is why we're here for God's kingdom and not ours. So what does he pray for? This teaches us how to be involved in God's work in other people's lives. You know, we, we say all the time, I'm praying for you. Oh, you're praying for me. Great. So you're thinking about me and gossiping about me in your spare time. Creepy. Thanks. No, no, there is something very real and powerful about praying for people, but it's got to be done the right way with right thinking. And this is teaching us how to do it. So first thing he prays is for them to be more loving. He asks for God to transform their character. To what extent does, does he hope that God will make them more loving? He says more and more. We are constantly growing in character to be more Christ-like. And so you can be involved in my growth by praying for me to become more loving, for my character to be transformed. Because where does love come from? Deep down in my character, my heart. Well, what does that? God. I didn't just wake up this loving. (laughs) When you think right, you can be involved in serving God and people and seeing his church grow. Not grow numerically, well, maybe, but grow in love. We need to be more loving, all of us. People aren't a burden to you. They're an opportunity to see God and plant his character and love in them. So when when a Christian is a jerk to you, the right way to act and think is, I'm going to pray for you to be more loving, brother. Not fake, but real. Man, you really hurt me. That's okay, because we're one. You just... Sometimes you need to clip your toenails. You scratch your own, you ever scratch your own leg with your toenails? I did that one time. I made myself bleed. That's like a Christian hurting another Christian. Clip, clip your toenails, but we'll get through this because I love you. And I'm going to pray that you clip your toenails. Number two, he prays for them to have wisdom. 
That means knowledge, discernment, able to determine what's right and wrong. That's a great way to pray and be involved in someone's life. Number three, he prays for them to be sincere, not having to be fake uh, and try to be better than who they are. That's legalism. When you try to keep the rules to impress others, not because you're truly spiritual and filled with the Spirit of God, but because you know it's the right thing to do. Well, I don't divorce your mom because I know it's the wrong thing to do. Your marriage is horrible. You're staying because you just know it's the right thing to do? That's not love. That is not love. Love comes from the heart and the character. We can pray for that. We can pray for that to be a reality, that they would be sincere. Next one, that they would be without offense. That they would understand how their actions affect other people. That's something to pray for. Not always be bothering them about, oh, your actions are annoying. No, pray for them that they would understand that they could be without offense, that their heart would grow so they're not, they're, they can live without offense. Next, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. For anyone to do anything right, it needs to be a fruit. Our good works cannot be produced in a factory. And our efforts are like a factory. God's dealings with us are like a garden. So in your mind, contrast a garden and a factory. You're driving down the road on your vacation like BK and Emma right now. And on the right side is a factory. What kind of sounds do you hear? Banging, grinding, efforts, explosions. Right? Scott works in a factory. I'm sure that's what it's like. Anyway, factories are where effort is applied and things come out. But none of them taste good. A garden on the left-hand side as you're driving down the street. A garden, what does this sound like? There's no one screaming at the plants. Did you fill out your time card? Bang on that harder. Come on, give me some effort here. That doesn't, ha- that doesn't work in a garden, right? There is some cutting, everyone, some pruning, a little bit. But it's done in a totally different way. But the fruit that's produced in a garden is delicious. Lovely. Righteousness, it says here, the fruits of righteousness are produced in Jesus Christ alone. Only by spending time with him in the quiet of your own heart and life is this produced. Paul is praying for them to have this life. Not a life of a factory. That would be the works of righteousness produced by your own wonderful efforts and schematics. Now, we wish righteousness was by that because we can control what happens in a factory. We can go home when we want to. In a garden, you just have to sit there and abide and stay there. If you take a tree out of the garden for even a day, what happens? 
It dies. That's how it works. Righteousness is only produced by hanging out with Jesus, abiding with him. And he's very patient. He's the gardener. That's how he likes to be called. So how does this happen with us? There, have you ever seen grafting happen in a tree? Jay and I talked about this at coffee on Thursday, right? So when you're a branch and you want to grow on a different tree, they have to cut you off your tree and take you over to this new tree. And on this other tree, what they have to do, they can't just throw you at it. You have to go and you have to be connected to it. So what they have to do is they have to take the the real tree and they have to cut it. They have to wound it. And, and then they take your wound and the tree's wound and they smush them together and they tie them up. And then the life or the sap of that tree flows into the new branch, just flows in over time. And then this, all of a sudden this branch will start to live again because it's been grafted in. And it doesn't, it, you can take the rope off after a certain amount of time and it will just be a part of the tree. And in fact, it's not another branch. It will actually be the tree. And that's exactly how it ex- works for us with Jesus. When we abide in him, it's, we are wounded, but we have to connect with his wound, which is the cross. Looking at That's where we connect with him. Faith is what ties us around together. And if we abide and remain close to him, we become a part of him. And then the fruit that comes out of this branch isn't sourced from the branch, it's sourced from the tree. Something this branch could have never produced on its own. No matter how much you yelled at it, no matter how much effort it put into it, it didn't have any life in it. But when we connect to Jesus in this tree, his life flows, fruit is produced, that's how it happens. John 15 tells us exactly how it happens. In John 15, verse 5, he says it like this. I am the vine, or trunk, and you are the branches, or branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Just picture a branch waving around, never will produce apples. Or you can do nothing in your factory, either. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words, sap, abide in you, then you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. And so you will be my disciples. As the fathers loved me, I also have loved you. So abide in my love. If you keep my commands, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commands and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you that your joy may be, that my joy may remain in you and your joy may be full that my joy will remain in you and your joy will be full. This is my command, that you love one another as I have loved you. That's exactly what Paul just taught us in the first section of Philippians. 
He's like, it is my joy to be connected with you guys and to pray for you guys, to thank God for you guys because I'm thinking the right way. And how am I thinking the way that Jesus is thinking? Why? Because I'm connected with him. It's his life flowing in me. To be involved in God's work and in the, in the lives of his people in his church, we need to abide, then pray. You want to be used by God in Denver in 2016? The only way is to abide and pray. Abide and pray. But I don't have a degree. I don't care. Just abide and pray and you will be used powerfully. The fruit you produce will not be your own. It will be Jesus working through your life. Praying for people while being connected to Jesus is the most powerful nuclear bomb in this world. When we partner with God to bring his righteousness into people's lives through prayer, we find that true joy is the reward for that kind of work. It's better to serve God than any other master. You know what? Let's just bond servant this. Put the earring in me. Because this is all I want is to serve this God in this way. His work isn't even a burden. His work is to pray. And it's not even our power or our resources that we're depending on. It's his. We're simply calling upon God to accomplish his word in the lives placed around us. And so give thanks to God when there's some lives you can pray for, even if they're annoying and difficult. We give thanks for them, even if they are horrible. You can be involved in turning that ship around too. And yes, God does wait to work and unleash his power until we pray. It's not because he's mean. It's because he has committed to partner with us. He will not change this world until we pray. That's how much he wants to partner with you. It's not that he needs you to tell him what to do. It's that he wants you to be involved. He wants you to be involved in the work of saving the people in this world and them being more, more godly and Christ-like. So to review, our five lessons are this. Number one, only take advice from humble servants of Jesus. Number two, give thanks for brothers even if they're difficult for you. Number three, pray optimistically for others just because they believe in the gospel. Number four, don't give up on believers because God doesn't scrap a project. And number five, we are all one. No one is better than anyone else. And then the application of all these thinking lessons was get in the battle right now and do spiritual work. Our theme verse is Romans 12 two. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Our natural mind doesn't understand how to think about our brothers and sisters in Christ. Our mind doesn't know how to be effective in their lives. So let's pray that our minds are changed and renewed so that we can be transformed ourselves. You know, they say, I'm okay with God. It's his followers I can't stand. False. You need to change. God, the people of God aren't the problem. You are. It's the way we think about them. Let the word of God transform you. Amen? Amen. We're done.
We are going to pray. We're going to sing a song and take communion. So would you all stand with me? <coughs> Excuse me. You know, with a teaching like this, you may feel like uh, you haven't been thinking right about some of the believers in your life. And this is a great time to confess that to the Lord and to repent and to say, I, I desire your heart, God. Teach me how to think and how to love those people in my life that are difficult to love. Lord, we give you our hearts just in a brand new way today. And I pray that you would do the work in our heart and mind of changing us. Lord, we need you so much. We want to be used in this world, Lord. We want to have you um, save those around us and use us, Lord. So prepare us, Father. Help us to be broken and help us to trust you in ways that we've never even thought of before.